And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Hello, and welcome to the Mentors Radio Show where your three CEO hosts take turns challenging your thinking about life and work. I'm Rick Brutico, your host for today, and I'm really glad you joined us. I think we've got a great show for you. Uh, We'll be talking with a very good friend of mine, Dan McClory, president of Bosted Securities, and our topic will be IPOs for the small cap emerging market companies. We're going also to hear Dan's very interesting story as he relates the path from college in Michigan to running a company in Italy to investment banking and the president of Busted. It's going to be a lot of fun and one of the most interesting stories you've heard, I assure you. And Dan's a guy that can really tell it in a way that motivates you and gets you going. A really nice fella. So whatever you do, stay with us and don't touch that dial. But before we get started, I want to remind you, call or email us. We want to hear your questions and concerns. It's important to us because we are here for you and we're really looking for your involvement. So go to our website, thementorsradio.com. You can send us a note, give us a call anytime, 24-7. You can find show notes there, archives of the podcast, links to sponsors and more. And of course, it's free. That is no cost. Only at thementorsradio.com. So send us a question or just tell us what you think of the show. Or maybe suggest a topic that you would like us to cover. Write it down. It's thementorsradio.com. You know that our show is based upon providing information from the years of our experience, that is, we the mentors experience. But our job is not necessarily to provide the answer, but rather to relate our experiences which should challenge you to think in maybe a slightly different way. There is no right answer, no one answer. The answer is really a series of opportunities a series of risks, and business is about managing risk. So our guests, which have great stories, they can really help us minimize that risk by telling us some of the things that happened to them over the years. So let's get started. Our guest today, as I said, is Dan McClory. He joined Bowstead Securities in 2016 as managing director. He is now head of the capital markets and serves as head of China. Now, that's something we have to ask him about. I really want to know what it's like to be head of a company as big as China. So, uh, But Dan's been very, very successful over his life. He won the deal of the year at the M&A Advisor Awards Conference, and he completed has completed IPOs and transactions for clients listed on the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, Toronto, Hong Kong, and Irish Stock Exchanges. In the meantime, Dan finds time to serve on the boards of the USA Track and Field Foundation, the Eastern Michigan University Foundation, and the Gen Next Foundation, where he has listed the first ever foreign-funded venture philanthropy back IPO. So join me now in welcoming Dan to the show. Hello, Dan. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Sounds great. Well, 
Well, we're glad to have you on the show and for you to take the time. I, as I was telling my listeners, and uh, you're just one of the busiest guys I know, always active, always doing something. Uh, and I thought one of the ways to get started was you could tell us a bit about a bit about your uh, background and your kind of your career, uh, how you got to where you are from where you started. I'd really like to know how you run your entire life off of that pocket daytimer that you keep all the time. You, you among the few people would know that about me, Rick. Well, again, it's great. It's great being on the show. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd go back to that adage. If you want to get something done, ask a busy person because, you know, people that aren't busy kind of have nothing to do and people who are have figured out how to get it done. And that's really been a mantra throughout my life, even thinking back to early days in high school and in college where I was born in Detroit and grew up there and went to school at a place called Eastern Michigan University. And, it, um, you know, it's it's not just a work ethic, but it's a commitment to getting things done and to making sure that, uh, you know, everything happens. Not always successfully, by the way, but that everything happens and you keep moving things down the road. I think um, as, as we talk about um, various experiences and career paths that I've had throughout my professional life, it, it will remind you and the listeners of this quote from Winston Churchill who said, the definition of success, and this is in politics now, is moving rapidly from one failure to the next. and uh, <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> you know, you, you stop and think about it. You say not every day is a winning day. Not every deal is a winning deal. Not every job is a winning job. But, you know, um, you keep moving in the right direction. So, now, it was really a quirk of fate that brought me from Michigan out to Southern California where you and I have got to know each other. And that had to do with uh, my first job with Ford Motor Company, like any good person from Detroit. Um, when I finished school at Eastern Michigan Uni- University, my undergraduate and graduate degrees, I went and interviewed with Ford. And sure enough, because it was in the early 80s, they had an opening out in California. All the domestic manufacturers like uh, uh, General Motors and Chrysler and Ford were losing their staff to people from, at the time, Datsun and Honda and Toyota. And sure enough, I'm, I'm on a plane going west of Wisconsin for the first time in my life and um, have literally been in Southern California the entire time, which is now approaching 35 years, and with an exception of some time that, uh, as you point out, I've spent in Italy operating a business over there. Um, I'll, I'll back up to college for one second. One of the things that I chose to be involved in at university was athletics, so track and field and cross country, which has been fantastic, not only for discipline, teamwork, and setting goals and, and, and ideally accomplishing them that that, uh, that that taught, but it's it's led to some of my philanthropic involvements and volunteer work in, in later in life in that in that same sport, track and field. Uh, so, picking up on coming out here to Southern California, my uh, my first job with Ford Motor Company, Rick, you know me, I was I was determined to be the next Lee Iacocca. It was just a matter of time, right? Did you did uh, you invent uh, the Mustang? I thought about it. I actually would have been the successor <laughs> to it, right? Because he had already done that. But, um, you know, like like so many people coming out of college, not just then, but today, you're looking for a job with a, a big company and a career path and stability and everything else. And, you know, as I look back at my career, it's been somewhat all over the place and um, very, very similar to millennials today who are part of what they call the gig economy and they're independent contractors and they go from opportunity to opportunity and this this mantra of 
you know, 30 years and out at one company is, is you know, completely already fallen by the wayside. But, um, you know, it was going to take me 10, 15 years, I thought, Rick, to be the next Iacocca. I decided, you know, I want to get there faster. So I, I looked at several industries, um, commercial real estate, commodities, um, financial planning, and I decided to become a fee-based financial planner with Cigna and passed my securities exams and got my insurance licenses and uh, eventually became the largest producer in their Newport Beach, California office for Cigna Individual Financial Services. Called on a lot of those car dealers that I had worked with when I was at Ford Motor Company as my initial clients and other highly compensated executives and professionals and uh, a little while after Dan, that. Dan, let's 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 hold it right there because we're coming up on a break, if you don't mind. But I'd like to pick that right up when we come back. Um, as a, as I said to you, Dan has a great story to tell, and I think you've already heard a good part of it. So stay with me at, through the break, and uh, you'll hear more from Dan, and you'll hear a lot about investment banking and how small companies, small cap emerging companies, go public on the IPO market. Talk to you after the break. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Well, welcome back. You're listening to The Mentors. I'm Rick Brutico, your host for this week's show. Please remember to check us out at www.thementorsradio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. This week, we're talking with Dan McClory, president of Baustead Securities, and head of China Investments. Now, Dan, I know you're telling us about the, your career, but I wish you could tell me, what, make sure that you put in, how do you become head of China? That's a very intriguing uh, title. Yeah, well, you, um, you go there every month, and uh, you learn to sleep on planes, and uh, <laughs> you arrive and immediately go into meetings and uh, eventually get deals done, and, and then you, you become head of China. But, um, you know... It was it was really a function of going out, seeing people, establishing relationships, getting deals done, and especially in a market like that, which has been such a force for growth, but yet so sometimes seemingly complex to deal with. It's really important to establish relationships there. And the people I'm dealing with today, maybe 10, 12 years after I've been involved in the country, um, you know, are the ones that I go to on a on a regular basis to uh, to, to find new opportunities and to get current ones completed. Just out of curiosity, uh, do you speak Chinese? I only know a few words. However, my, my oldest son is completely fluent in Mandarin. He went to Berkeley and double majored in political science and Chinese. And uh, I've involved him from time to time in some things I'm doing, but he's off working on his own for another investment bank, a Chinese investment bank, as a matter of fact. Um, but, you know, Rick, so many interactions with people. I've spent a lot of my career in international business. It's reading people, understanding body language, if someone is confident, if somebody is concerned. Um, many times, and you would react probably the same way, You, someone makes a statement in a language you don't even understand, and I only know English and Italian, and that's about it. Um, I can start to answer the question, even though I don't know what they said. I, I know what they said. And uh, yeah. a lot of times I'm actually right, believe it or not. So. <laughs> well, Dan, uh, just well, since you did touch on it, I want to go back to your career, but since you touched on the China thing, or I guess I actually touched on it, 
so Dan, um, I just want to go back to your career, but before I do, we, we introduced this China thing, and I'd like to know what do you think since we just had the China subject as a summit with our new president? Uh, how how does that uh, bode for business and uh, our relationships with China? Seems to me, is the same time we're having the summit, we got uh, warships going towards Korea. So, you got any any insight on that for us? I'm sure we'd all be very interested. Yeah, that's a great question, Rick, and. Of course, now with the benefit of President Trump actually being in office and a lot of the uh, election and campaign rhetoric somewhat toning down, I think you're seeing a different approach towards China than what we heard in the fall. And, of course, in the fall we heard about uh, trade wars and we heard about China as a currency manipulator and uh, they're ripping us off and, and things of this nature. But, in fact, probably the biggest thing to come out of the summit in Mar-a-Lago uh, last Thursday and Friday with President Xi was the development of a friendship and a toning down of that rhetoric and an agreement through Treasury Secretary Mnuchin to work on a 100-day plan where the U.S. and China are going to find areas of commonality and areas where they can make immediate progress as opposed to ones that we're currently hung up on. So I think both sides acknowledge that they're, they're the beginnings of a, of a, of a very good and solid relationship that I'm talking about purely on the uh, trade and economic level. And it, it probably was quite an interesting thing to have been in that state dinner when uh, President Trump mentioned to President Xi that, you know, oh, by the way, we've launched 60 missiles into Syria. And uh, I just wanted you to know. So that <laughs> it's like it's like that saying, Dan. Uh, and, and, and other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? You know, I mean, it's exactly. kind of a shocker. <laughs> exactly. And and so any of the geopolitical conversations about Korea or the disputed South China Islands, you know, that just put a whole different tenor on uh, on all of that. And I'm sure Mr. Xi sat up immediately and said, "Wow, I'm dealing with an action-oriented guy here, and and that should kind of color my thinking and responses to him going forward." So um, yep. I, I think I think we're um, off to a good start is the way I'd put it. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm sure you'll be joining them at the next meeting, given your background. It would be interesting to at least be a fly on the wall. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I know you do a, a number of interviews for the Chinese TV people. So I got to think they, they must have at least heard of you. You must you must be on the uh, FBI's list or something by now. Well, you never know. I mean, all of these, this wiretapping that goes on and then surveillance, I'm just kidding. Um, but the Chinese really want to know what's happening in the U.S. They really want to know from people who are close to business transactions like you and I, you know, what's the sentiment, where are the opportunities? And so, yes, I've, 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 I've been fortunate to, on an almost weekly basis, go on China TV, which is, you know, a billion people. It's a state monopoly. And be able to talk to them primarily about economic items. But just like with your experiences, Rick, and, and, and being a mentor, you know, so much of what you comment on today is a, is a function of where you came from and what you did previously, and that makes you obviously who you are. And I'd, I'd have to say that my transition from being in financial services, that's, you know, personal financial services, being a fee-based financial planner, um, into what I would call my equity phase was an interesting one where I decided that, you know, anyone can earn commissions or be successful uh, in transactions, but the real key was to build equity. So my wife and I started a software manufacturing company in Italy, of all places. She's Italian. Her, her parents were living back there at the time. 
Um, and so we picked up and moved over to Italy and built a facility. We accessed grants from the Italian government for establishing a business in a zone that was really the northernmost part of southern Italy, but still the subject of a, a pretty diverse contrast with, with the more prosperous northern Italy. Um, we had things like low interest loans, we had uh, payroll tax reductions, and we started, I always say, legally duplicating software. So we would work for companies, game software, productivity software companies, Lotus, Borland, Activision, others, and make multiple copies of their programs and games, package them up, put them on pallets, ship them around to distributors and retailers. And it was quite an interesting business. And was, Dan, was that just in Europe or in Italy, or were you shipping them all over from there? It was it was only Europe, uh, and it was probably 50% Italy, 50% outside of Italy. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of you know my first exposure to then you know outside sources of capital because we wanted to grow that business. So we put together some pretty strong relationships with some distribution companies who were bringing us business but also some of our competitors. And after building it up to eight figures plus in revenues, we decided to sell the business to one of our competitors in Milan. And I stuck around and helped them take it public on the Italian stock exchange, which, which was my very first experience then with the capital markets. And I came out of that saying, this is really interesting. You know, the concept of going to the stock market to get capital, of bringing in investors, of being able to have your shares trade, have that as a uh, available capital to expand and grow. And after concluding that in the mid-90s, uh, we moved back to the U.S. and started investing in some early stage and, and Internet companies. And uh, that was another very interesting chapter of my life. I think it concluded with what I affectionately now call the dot comedy, um, which was, you know, that, that boom <laughs> that, that we all. Place. That we all experienced, right? <laughs> well, which we did, we all... which, uh, you know, I guess I would say you and I experienced it directly and personally as our paths crossed for the first time in, in the late 90s and then the early 2000s. And So, Dan, you, Dan you, we only have about 40 seconds, but tell that story very quickly, how you and I met. Well, I, I was going to say I think, but I'm going to say I know that you fired me. I was working at one of those dot comedy companies, and uh, kind of the gig was up, and time had run out, and there was no more money, and we didn't make the window before March 10th of 2000 and go public when the bottom fell out. And uh, you let me know it was time, and uh, we've we've been friends ever since. Yes, we have, Dan. It's been a great relationship, and I really appreciated the way that went down that day and how well you understood it. Uh, as I recall, you said. I know you're here to fire me, and it's about time. Anyway, with that, we have to go on a break again, so please stick with us and hear the rest of Dan's story. And yes, we will get to IPOs for small emerging companies. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Well, welcome back. You're listening to The Mentors. I'm Rick Brutico, your host mentor for this week. And my guest today is my good friend, Dan McClory. Dan is a man of many careers and one of the most creative investment bankers I know. Also one of the creative, most creative people I know. And as I mentioned in the earlier se- segment, he is so busy all the time, runs his entire life out of a pocket daytimer. But where we are now, Dan, is we were just talking about when I met you at a company called Zealand. I 
uh, for the for the listener's point of view, I want them to know that I was called in probably a month before I met Dan. And I was called in by one of the board members, and they saw the thing cratering, and they wanted me to come up with uh, some ideas or answers or something for them. And uh, I spent some time on my very first day. I found out that we weren't going to make payroll. So um, it was an interesting way to get started, and that led me to having to cut as quickly as possible. As I recall, Dan, you were in Europe uh, traveling around anyway, so you didn't get back for another couple of weeks and when you came back, I found you downstairs, and that's when I asked you to find another job because we were out of money. So uh, why don't we pick it up from there, Dan? Absolutely. Well, you know, as, as the various businesses you've operated, Rick, and the ones I've been involved in, not everything always is successful all the time. But I think you learn so much about people when you hit a rough patch. And everybody's a hero when the fish are jumping in the boat and things are good. And, you know, but when stuff goes sideways just a little bit or a lot that's when you find out what people are made of and then you decide you know that guy i like the way he reacted i want him on my team the next time or that guy boy he just ran for the hills and there's really not a whole lot of value there so i i think there's a lot to be gleaned from those unsuccessful or less than successful experiences um that you can use over and over again in the future I think you learn, Dan, you're so right. You learn just as much, sometimes more, from the things that didn't go right than you learn from the things that go right. Because you're often not even aware of why they went right. You made a number of decisions and everything came out. But when they go wrong, you pretty much want to look back and say, what's the postmortem look like? What did we do? And it, it is very instructive. I agree with you. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things, Rick, that really led me from what I was doing at Zealand, the dot comedy, which you... Uh, so uh, compassionately relieved me of um, 17 years ago, that that led me to say, you know, companies have a constant need for growth capital. And in a lot of ways, as a country, we really haven't done a great job about getting the money from the people who have it to the people that don't. And I'm talking specifically about small and medium-sized businesses. And so I came out of that experience saying, I've been involved with a lot of different companies, my role was typically in the area of international business development and investor development. So I went back to some of those contacts that I had in Europe, and I was talking to some of those investors when I was gone from Zealand at the time you mentioned, and had brought a lot of them into the capital structure of various companies that both I invested in and, and they did as well. But I had been doing it, Rick, on a sequential basis, one company at a time, and I finally said, you know, I ought to be an investment banker, and that way I could work with multiple companies simultaneously. So, I just so Dan, Dan, let me inter interrupt right there and ask you a question about that. So just again for the audience, and I'm interested too. Uh, you know, we hear the name investment banking, investment banker talked around, tossed around a lot. And I'm sure many of many listeners are not sure of the difference between an investment banker, a merchant banker, or a Bank of America banker. So give me what, give me a little idea in our audience as well. What does the investment banker actually do? Great question, Rick. So an investment banker. Is, is charged with raising money for other companies as opposed to a commercial banker that might be doing it for um, businesses or uh, individuals. But an investment banker is, is working on a B2B basis to help companies mostly grow and expand, in some cases restructure their existing capital or debts. And investment banking has many different connotations, but I would separate it from merchant banking. And merchant banking Companies and people are taking positions in, in, in other businesses, so you're actually directly investing your capital in 
investment banking, you normally have someone else's money for sale. So in our case, we have access to funds. These could be hedge funds, institutional funds. And in a lot of cases, it's ultra high net worth individuals and high net worth individuals that we understand their investing priorities and criteria. And so we bring them deals to invest in. And that's our job is really to match the seekers of capital, such as small and medium-sized emerging growth companies, with the providers of that capital who, in many cases, are those sources that I mentioned, the funds and, and high net worth individuals. And so you might say that you might say you've got a pot you, you might say you've got a pot of money, right? But the pot of money is let's say your contacts, your knowledge of what these well-to-do individuals or these funds uh, have and that they want to be invested to get better returns, I assume. And so therefore they've laid out their criteria. Your job is to match their criteria with those seeking. Is that is that about right? That's a great point because early in my career, I was putting square pegs in round holes and I was showing all the various investors I had access to all of my deals and I wasn't listening to what was their criteria. And then when I figured out, understand their criteria and then bring them deals that they want and can invest in, that became the winning combination. So I think you're spot on when you describe it that way. It's, it's aligning those providers of capital with those seekers of capital and doing it as closely as possible so that you know you've made a match and you're efficient with all the time that you invest in getting to know a company and getting to know an investor. So the, pro- the process that you're talking about, I guess, is what we commonly call an IPO. Is that correct? That's one of the, the processes, yes. And, you know, IPOs or initial public offerings are when a company progresses to the point where they want to offer their stock to the public, normally in what's called an underwritten offering, so an offering that's backed by an investment bank such as ours, Bowstead. And you would list those shares on a securities exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange or, as you mentioned in my case, several various foreign stock exchanges that I've been involved with in the last couple of decades. So that could be the culmination of someone's fundraising approach, Rick, or it could be the way they enter the market. We've dealt with companies at all points in that food chain or all points in that corporate finance um, growth trajectory. So they may be through their founders round. They may have done a seed round, as it's referred, or a series A round, and then they keep progressing. And they decide, you know, we meet the criteria to be able to list. We'd like to have access to a greater amount of capital, and we're, we're okay with all of the disclosure requirements uh, and the compliance with uh, filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and NASDAQ and others, uh, and they, and they want to move into that territory. And, and more and more companies are wanting to pursue this as they understand that doing an IPO isn't just about a billion-dollar company. It can be companies in all shapes and sizes, maybe as small as you know, 5 to $10 million in value. So, so Dan, that pro- that process uh, uh, is is we called as a is an IPO kind of a process, and I'm sure there's a lot of criteria about that to do that. Um, one of the things that I want to ask you, and we only have about 30 seconds or so to, to finish this up, and then we'll pick it up on the other side of the break again. But do does the the person getting the IPO do they need to be in business for like 10 years and have years of audited financials and all of those kinds of things? I mean, is there still things like the Jeffrey Bank note company that prints up the perspectives? Uh, what, what are we looking for to get going? What kind of tools do they have to bring? And we, sorry, we're just about out of time, but if you can give us a quick answer, I'd appreciate it. Sure. It's actually changed recently in, in, in 2012 with the Jobs Act that President Obama signed into 
the law, you only need two years of audited financial statements in order to qualify to be a public company. The stock exchanges have criteria on top of that, but you don't have to go back three years or 10 years, uh, just two at this point. Okay, so let's let's uh, hold that there, and we'll pick that up after the break because I think a lot of our listeners really don't understand what they need to do to be listed. If you're listening to The Mentors. Remember, go to thementorsradio.com. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Well, welcome back again. Uh, this is Rick Brutico, your mentor host for this week. And I think as I promised you that you'd have an exciting show with uh, my guest, Dan McClory, uh, president and head of China Investments for Bowstead Securities. Dan's taken us in a lot of directions, including uh, giving us his opinions on the political uh, changes that have taken place since our new president met with the president of China just this uh, last week. So, at this point, where we're picked up is with IPOs for smaller companies, Dan. And I want to focus on that because you said something really important, at least to me, at the very beginning when you said, you know, that smaller companies, and that's what I found in my career, smaller companies had a very, very hard time accessing the public markets. In fact, for the most part, they were pretty much closed out unless they had a tremendous amount of venture capital coming in. So. I, what I was always led to believe, and I'd kind of like you to comment on this, you just mentioned that we don't need years of financials like I had heard you had to have audited financials. And, of course, that could be very expensive when you get an auditor to do that. Uh, I also remember having to do formal perspectives uh, such as the so-called Jeffrey Banknote company used to do. So can you kind of give us an idea of today for these smaller emerging companies? And I don't know, maybe you want to give us an idea of the size as well. What do they have to have and how do, what, what are you going to ask them for so that you can help them along the way? Great question, Rick. And, and, I, and I really think the audience um, would like to know and understand as well. So as I mentioned, the Jobs Act in 2012 um, was designed to get money. It's called Jumpstart Our Small Businesses. It's an acronym for that. was designed to get the money to the people that need it, right, small and medium-sized companies. And as a result, the requirement of conforming to a compliance procedure called Sarbanes-Oxley, um, that has also been removed. There's a five-year phase-in period for it. So that was something that was estimated to be extremely costly, even if you could become public, to be able to conform to that. But really, the advent today of other forms of financing, including what's been called crowdfunding, has led to an even more streamlined and simplified application procedure with the SEC. So as you mentioned, Rick, you know, you'd file a prospectus or what's called a registration statement, and typically that would go into the SEC and it would be a long form with a lot of information. And that is really for purposes of disclosure. They want everything to be out there in the open. So when you start marketing these securities, there's a level playing field of knowledge from all the various investors that you're talking to about putting money into your company. And then you're simultaneously applying to a stock exchange, say NASDAQ. And let me just First, one of those uh, uh, bubbles that might be out there, people thinking, you know, I've got to have $100 million in revenue and $10 million in profits. You don't. Uh, think of some of the companies who have IPO'd, like biotech companies, that have no revenues. All they're about is research and development. They're trying to build the better mousetrap, and they're being purchased on the basis of future potential. So there's not a revenue requirement. There's not an earnings requirement. 
I'll, I'll go over the quantitative requirements for NASDAQ's capital market, which is their entry-level tier. Uh, you have to have at least $4 million of shareholder equity. So that's assets over liabilities. And, and by the way, Rick, you can get to that number as a result of your IPO. So you might have a negative million dollars in net worth and you raise $5 million in your IPO and now you have a positive $4 million. You meet the requirement. So that's a post-listing number then, right, Dan? Yeah, Yeah. post-listing, given effect to the offering that you complete. So you need 300 shareholders. Uh, You need to have a share price of at least $4 a share. And you need to have 25% of your shares in what's called the public float or in hands of people other than the founders. And again, that can be accomplished through this public offering. It can be accomplished through people who are not considered insiders of the company that already have shares. But really, those are the requirements. And it's interesting, Rick, when we talk to companies and make them aware of how they could be listed. And this is a direct listing on NASDAQ. This isn't a reverse merger. This isn't going to the -the over-the-counter markets. Um, This is having your IPO on NASDAQ, separate and distinct. A lot of companies, once they understand that there's a a tangible path they can get through, and and doing so through an underwriter like like ourselves at Bowstead, they immediately then start talking to their existing investors about a way to get them what we call liquidity or an ability to trade their shares at some point in the future, but a lot sooner than they previously expected. So it really works well to be able to establish this IPO as an endpoint, which may be four, six, nine months down the road, depending upon how ready a company is, and then work backwards and say, well, I'm going public in six months. You should invest in me today to help build some momentum into that IPO. And by the way, this DocuBuy today will be less expensive than when we eventually go public. So, so you, you, this is kind of very intriguing, and I, and I, I'm, I actually thought I knew quite a bit about this, but I realize now that I didn't. Uh, it really means that just about anybody could, as long as you can convince the investment bankers that either your idea, your research, your product, your market, something makes it uh, likely that you're going to succeed and make these uh, these conditions of 300 shareholders. Four million in equity, etc., that you derived. Is that correct? That's exactly right. But I'll I'll give you sort of the answers to the test as we evaluate companies, Rick. And maybe some of our audience is considering this right now. But we we have three criteria because, as you can imagine, the last time I checked, there were a lot more people looking for money for their companies than right. there were people providing it. Even though always the case. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> may not be true, but but it is in this cycle. So we're looking for number one, great companies, and again. That could be a solid management team. It could be a proprietary product or service or solution. It could be a big addressable market that they're going after. But, but top, top-notch solid companies, they don't necessarily have to be generating revenues, by the way, as I mentioned earlier. It's helpful if they are. It's helpful if they're profitable. The second thing we look for is investor momentum. So we're looking for companies that have already been funded by other investors. It could be friends and family. It could be early-stage angel or seed investors. It could be some funds. And the reason we're looking for that, Rick, is when we're able to come to them and say, we're going to put a stake in the ground and this company will be public in six months, there are great sources for investing additional capital today and also participate in the IPO. Because what we want to do is we don't want to have that IPO be completely dependent on market conditions. You know, if uh, there's an issue with a particular fund who is going to place a big order and then they pull it out and then the IPO is, is stopped. Um, we want to be able to almost self-fund this IPO with investors the company knows and that we can help bring them. So investor momentum, really important. Third criteria, social media marketability. 
you know, today marketing to millennials, you know, the age of social media, there are so many compliant and correct ways to be able to reach out to investors uh, using things like Facebook and Twitter, websites, uh, compliant email, that all things being equal, we're looking for companies who would appeal to social media users and followers. And that allows us to use a funding tactic, which has now been been, uh, labeled crowdfunding. And crowdfunding has some even more streamlined requirements in terms of the filing documents that the SEC uh, requests of you. And you know, we're in the process right now of doing one of the first crowdfunded IPOs. Let's hold it right there because we're coming up to a break again. And I, I really want to get into this. I was intrigued when I heard about this kind of social media investment banking, as I call it. So uh, I'd like to hear more about that when we come back from the break. And I'm sure you all want to stay with us to hear how crowdfunding can fund your company by Dan McClory of Bowstead Securities. Stay with us. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. So welcome back. You're listening to The Mentors, and we're, you can find us at uh, the station you're listening to on your radio dial right now or at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. I'm Rick Brutico, your host for this week's show, and my guest is Dan McClory, president of Bowstead Securities. When, right before we left, Dan, we were talking about this new uh, kind of social investment, uh, what, I call, what I would call um, cr- crowdfunding, and you kind of mentioned that word, but I remember it as a friend of mine uh, said his sister was trying to raise money for some specific thing she was doing in Mexico. I can't imagine what, but uh, I don't remember what, rather, and, uh, and she put something on, on the website, and before I knew it, people were sending in $10, 20 $30 it had something to do with making a film, and at the end of the day, she had raised about 20000 and the idea was you'd get a copy of the film when it was done. I don't know if that ever was successful or not, that is, but she did raise $20,000. Is this what you're talking about? It's not. It's where crowdfunding started, but where it's evolved to is what we call equity crowdfunding. So remember what we've been discussing throughout the show, and that is getting money to growing businesses, small and medium-sized companies that want to expand. So now crowdfunding has moved into the equity phase where you can conduct the equivalent of an initial public offering online. We're working on a financing right now that's going to be a minimum of $11 million and a maximum of $25 million, and it's going to be completely available online. So this kind of changes the outlook of most people thinking that crowdfunding was, as you described it, it still can be. It still can be for donations and charity and contribution of goods in kind. But this is about getting shares in a company, in our case, that's going to be listed on NASDAQ immediately. So Is the, pro- is the process the same, though, Dan? Is it, is it like you're, you're still going to have to do uh, the, you know, all of the information, the public information and the prospectus and the notification to the, to the potential investors, et cetera? Is, is that the same process? It's just that it's done online? You're filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission just like you were for what I'll call an industrial strength IPO. But in fact, you're filing a different form, which the SEC has been approving in half the time that they've approved a conventional public offering of securities and that exchanges like NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange are now getting comfortable with. There are four or five other companies that are vying with Bowstead to be the first underwriter to bring one of these equity crowdfunding IPOs to the market. So it is a 
a lighter regulatory touch. It is a reduced filing requirement, but you are, in fact, filing with the same regulators to get your offering done. And it's, it's a very exciting time, Rick, and it's something that I think whose, whose time has definitely come. And so I'm so how are you participating? How are you participating? Sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but how are you participating? I, I thought you had something like a flash funding or something. Tell us about that. You so remember our, our, well. So at Boston Securities, having been in the conventional and traditional investment banking business, we decided that this was the, the direction and the future of investment banking. So we acquired what's called a crowdfunding portal, which is regulated by FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association. And it's at uh, flashfunders, that's plural, flashfunders.com. And we are in the process of moving our various offerings that we continue to market traditionally and offline. Uh, to that portal and making them available to investors that will find out about us on the web at large. And so we really see that as the direction. Of course, not all offerings are going to end up online and not all will be successful. One of the big understandings you have to have is you need to bring your crowd. If you're a company seeking funding, you've got to market to people who would be interested in that offering or that IPO. And you're just enabling them in a much easier and faster way to be able to subscribe to that offering. So flashfunders.com has a lot of good information about the whole equity crowdfunding approach, and you'll see some representative deals there to get an idea about how this whole emerging sector works and how it might apply to the companies of, of, of some of our listeners. Well, and that that's very interesting and, and, and an appropriate comment because, as far as I'm concerned, in you know when you read through those that pile of paper you get on the so-called industrial strength listings, uh, these people today, people today are most able to look at their computer and do things on the computer, very familiar with it, and it makes it an easy, easier way to navigate and an easier way to get around. So I think you're really on the right track. And for those listeners that uh, want to know more about it. Uh, Dan said the name of the company is, or rather the website of the company is flashfunders.com. And we will put up on our website a link to that particular other website for flash funding and also a link to Dan's information so you can get a hold of him. Dan, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming today and spending time with us. And I'm going to ask you in front of all these listeners, uh, do you think you'd come back and join us sometime? Absolutely, Rick. Wonderful show, wonderful amount of information. We've got so much more to cover, so we'll have to have you back again. This is Rick Brudico for TheMentorsRadio.com. Next week, your host will be John Phillips, who will be talking to Chris Smith for The Campfire Effect, how to create everything you want to know about branding your product. And remember, every day, in every way, do your part to make our world a little better. Thanks for listening. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.